Hello and welcome to the Gentleman's Journal podcast, a fortnightly discussion all about success, modern business and the lives of entrepreneurs. I'm Joe Bullmore, I'll be your host for the day and I'm joined this afternoon by Steve Vassano, founder and CEO of The Jet Business, which is the world's first private aviation showroom. Steve's career started up in the clouds when he trained to become a pilot in the 1970s and it's been onwards and upwards from there. Today, the American has sold more jets than almost anybody in the world and his remarkable showroom on Park Lane continues to use breathtaking technology and insight to win over its customers. In one of the most entertaining episodes I think we've ever recorded, Steve tells us how a chance encounter at a nightclub led to his first job in sales, how having a good network is one of the most valuable things in the world and how his first successful sale at the hands of some mysterious Venezuelans was almost his very last. But I won't ruin the surprise there. You'll have to listen for yourself. Enjoy. Steve, thanks very much for joining us on the Gentleman's Journal podcast. It's my pleasure. You've been selling jets for, I I think, more than 30 years. Is that right? Well, I started about 40 years ago. 40 years. uh, But uh, I took a break in between and uh, was in the uh, merchant banking, what they used to call uh, merchant banking. Now they call private equity, mergers and acquisitions. Yeah. The jet industry is kind of a very rarefied atmosphere. It's not your, you can't just take an apprenticeship in selling private jets. How did you get started in it? Yeah, it's an interesting process. I, I actually I started learning how to fly when I was 14 years old. I went to university yeah. to get a degree in aeronautical studies, and then I became a lobbyist uh, in Washington, D.C., as a, um, a representing the airplane manufacturers in Capitol Hill. And uh, it was a great job, great for the ego, being a you know 21-year-old kid walking around the, the halls of the Capitol trying to influence <laughs> government people to do the right thing, or the right <laughs> thing as we saw it. And um, it was a great job, but it paid terribly. So at nighttime, I worked in a nightclub that my roommate owned. And um, that's where I met some guy who sold jets and yeah. got interested after he showed me a few of the paychecks he was getting and, <laughs> and forced my way into the company and got a job. Yeah. What was your upbringing like? If we go back even further, were you set up for this kind of high life of jets and nightclubs? Yeah, it was completely the opposite, okay. for sure. Um, I was brought up basically, uh, my mother with no father uh, through my whole life. Uh, she was supporting four kids, working two jobs all her life. So we pretty much were pretty independent, did what we wanted to do. And I started working when I was seven years old, sweeping floors in a beauty parlor and dishwasher and busboy in restaurants and yeah. delivering newspapers and all that kind of stuff uh, when I was a kid, anything I could do to make some money. So I've been working for a long time and, and used to having to work for anything I want. Nobody yeah. ever given me anything. So do you think you've always been quite entrepreneurial? You've always been on the eye for the opportunity? Uh, yeah, I mean, probably more survivor okay. uh, in the early days than, yeah, yeah, yeah. than entrepreneurial. I probably didn't know what that was. But yeah, trying to make some money and survive in the early days. Mm. And, um, and it sort of has grown just by being, I don't know if you want to call it street smart, and uh, before going to school and trying to be book smart. And when you met that gentleman at the nightclub who who had the big paychecks. How did you go about converting that meeting into a, a real job and a living? Yeah, well, he was uh, wearing a, a tie tack that was an airplane <laughs> in those days when obviously most people today don't wear ties and definitely don't wear tie tack, tie <laughs> pins. And, but he had a jet on his tie pin. So I just asked him, why are you wearing a jet on your tie pin? And he told me he sold planes. And, 
And then he used to come in every week or so and when he was drunk and show me commission checks. Of course, those days you used to have checks. Yeah. And um, after three or four of those, I said, okay, that's enough. I, I, I want to come meet your boss. Yeah. And um, he sort of pushed me back for a little while, but eventually uh, just pursued it and more and more and got into the office and mm. talked his boss into hiring me for free. For free? Yeah. What, you were operating on commission only? Well, yeah. I mean, I was you know, I didn't have any experience at all in selling anything. And um, so I convinced him that to hire me, it doesn't cost him anything. So I worked basically for no pay for eight months until I sold my first airplane and I became a waiter in a restaurant at night so I could pay my bills. Really? <laughs> what did it feel like to sell your first plane? It was uh, an incredible high. I mean, it was something like you would never, very surreal. Yeah. Um, here I am flying on this brand new, at that time it was a little over $3 million, which today would be the equivalent of probably a 40 or $50 million airplane. Mm. All airplanes are priced in dollars. And um, it started out as an incredible high, but mm. it turned out to be a uh, quite an adventure before it was all done. This is, this is your story about the Venezuelan client? Yeah. We went to close the deal in uh, North Carolina, a state in America that, that is uh, tax efficient. And uh, we signed all the documents there, and two of the representatives of the buyer from Venezuela were there. And we were flying the airplane to Miami, where we would confirm all the funds were received and the deal was closed. And then they were going to take the airplane to Venezuela, and I was going to get on the commercial plane and fly yeah. back to Washington, D.C. And halfway on the flight to Miami, where I was thinking I was, you know, the king of, uh, of the jungle. I mean, I just sold my first plane for $3 million. I was 23 years old or something. Um, you know, sitting back drinking a scotch and, you know, yeah. I, I was fantastic, I'm really flying in the clouds. And they just turned to me and said, Steve, we need to talk to you about something. I said, sure. You know, and he said, well, we want to talk about our fee. I said, what do you mean your fee? I said, uh, you know, the deal is done. Uh, you know, you work for the buyer, you get paid by him. No, 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 we want to talk about our fee. So, well, there's no money in this deal. I mean, forget it. We got paid. You're going to get paid from somebody else. Leave yeah. me alone. He said, well, when we get to Venezuela, we'll talk it all over. And, um, you know, when we get our money, you'll go back home. I said, no, you don't understand. I'm not going to Venezuela. I'm going <laughs> back to Washington. And at that moment, the, one of the gentlemen pulled out from underneath his jacket a pistol. And he pointed it at me. And, and no further, I mean, you know, it's a small little private jet, so he's maybe four feet away from me, and he points this gun right at my face. He said, no, you don't understand, Steve. You're coming to Venezuela, <laughs> and if we don't get our money, you will never be going home. Wow. So uh, all of a sudden, I went from the king to, like, feeling those little mouse hiding in the corner yeah, of the cool. room. I didn't know what to do. I mean, it's, thank goodness, the first and only time in my life has had a gun pointed in my face, <laughs> but at that close proximity, I was pretty scared. I thought, well, I was having visions of my mother receiving a box in the mail, you know, in the post that, that had all my body parts in it. And because um, <laughs> it's quite scary moment. Yeah, of course. I mean, how did it end up? Well, we landed in Miami and thank goodness in those days they didn't have mobile phones. So we had to go inside the private jet terminal to make a phone call. And uh, as we went in there, he followed me in with his gun in his pocket under, you know, jacket and uh, very crazy TV show kind of thing. And, um, and I went in to make a phone call to my, my company, and as I was on the phone, he's standing next to me. The lady behind the, uh, the uh, counter said, you know, excuse me, sir, I need your credit card to pay for the fuel for the plane. And when he turned around to walk over to give her the credit card, I mean, he was maybe 
20 feet away. I dropped the phone. I ran out the other door where they have the sort of rental cars, taxis, yeah. limousines and stuff. And I jumped into a taxi and said, <laughs> quick, 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 I got to catch a flight. We were at Miami Airport. Uh, quick, I got to catch a flight in 20 minutes. Go, go, go. And the taxi driver drove off quickly. And, um, and I was sort of ducking in the back seat, thinking this guy's coming out shooting. He came out running. He looked at me, but I escaped. And um, I went to the terminal, called the office real quick, asked them if the deal was closed. They confirmed everything was done. I said, great, I'll see you later. And I hung up. And I was hiding behind all the concrete columns oh at the airport, God. thinking these guys are coming to kill me. I mean, this was back in 1980, yeah. 80-ish or something. You know, maybe not quite Scarface, Miami, but it was a pretty dangerous place. And um, these guys were not probably readers of your magazine. Um, <laughs> so it, it was a little bit of a weird situation. I finally got myself on the plane. Yeah. I left my briefcase, my jacket, everything was in the private jet and um, took off. And I was... I mean, my heart was pumping, racing. I got back home that night. I went to the office in the morning. Of course, now it's the next day. I yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, sure. I was, you know, it was like a James Bond movie. It was so cool. You know, you're playing Big Shot. But for a month, I was probably looking over my shoulder, you know, worrying that these guys were going to be coming and grabbing me any minute. Really? But never heard from them again. That okay. was my first airplane sale. Wow. What a way to start. Did you, did you want to get out of the business then? Did you think this isn't for me if this is the kind of thing that happens? Yeah, it definitely, it definitely <laughs> crossed my mind. But uh, I figured, okay, listen, it can't be like this. Yeah. It's impossible. I'll just try one more. Okay. And I tried one more and, you know, it just went on and on and on. <laughs> the rest is history. Yeah. I guess the 80s was an amazing boom time for you and for lots of people with lots of new money created. What do you remember from that, that period? Wow. You know, I don't remember too much except for, you know, being exposed to private jets yeah. and people that owned them uh, and companies that owned them. So you started getting exposed to really amazing parts of, of lifestyle mm. that I've never was seen. I've never seen before. So, you know, yachts and fine clothing and incredibly great restaurants, exotic locations for holidays and you know, this were all the people and companies that have airplanes. They, you know, they enjoy these things. And um, also you have to go to the terrible places in the world that are manufacturing cities where mm. maybe it's not so luxurious. But that's sort of, you got to take the good with the bad. Yeah. Was that the golden period for private jets, do you think? I think in the mid to late 80s was really, really go-go. I mean, mm. that's when uh, Wall Street was jumping. The junk bond days were happening. There was a lot of takeovers of companies uh, there was really a lot of excitement in the financial world. And um, contrary to what everybody's images of corporate jets are, that um, it's not really the individual male or female sitting on a private jet, you know, drinking champagne with, you know, playboy or playgirls sitting around. It's, it's not like that at all. It's about 70, 75% of all passenger of corporate jets are middle management of, mm. of companies. So it was um, learning that whole scenario also. And that's where all these companies were growing and merging. So they all needed more, more corporate jets. And yeah. that's where it really started growing. Of course. Did you meet the kind of big players at the time, the Donald Trumps of the world in Manhattan? Actually, yeah. I used to see Donald Trump quite a lot. And he flew, the, one of the people I worked with, um, we flew a lot between New York and Palm Beach. Yeah. So he would call me sometimes and say, hey, you know, Ivana's is going to come with you down in Palm Beach. I'm going to take my plane. Or I'm going to yeah. come with you. I'm going to send Ivana on our plane. But um, that's when I was working in the in the okay. uh, merchant banking group. But so I, I did try to do a couple of transactions with him. And um, 
it was an eye opener to say the least. Yeah. <laughs> was he as tough a deal maker as people say, or was at least as eccentric as people say? Well, I guess to be politically correct, I would say that he actually believes what he says. Right. Okay. That's very okay. diplomatic. So, uh, <laughs> so at the very least, maybe other honest. people don't. But he, he actually yeah. that he is so convincing that he convinced himself, and um, and so it was you know it was an interesting yeah. personality to to deal with it that day. Of course. I want to touch on one more part of the 1980s, that apparently you were Bachelor of the Month in Cosmopolitan <laughs> magazine. Is this true? Well, well okay. Uh, yeah. Does that come up a lot still? Does it haunt you? Well, I, I thought it was hiding in the archives <laughs> of, uh, of the uh, internet until yeah. my uh, the little young daughter of my other half, uh, Lisa, had uh, found it in, wow. in, a, in a search. Um, but... Uh, yeah, no, what happened was is I was featured in a magazine called Flying Magazines, okay. like, you know, boating, skiing, and it was a flying magazine. And I was featured in the back of that magazine as a, as the avid reader of that magazine in those days. And um, the advertising executive of, of that magazine thought it'd be fun to send it into this magazine, Cosmopolitan, <laughs> to feature me. And I didn't know anything about it. And one day at work, somebody called me and just said, Oh yeah, I'm calling from Cosmopolitan magazine. I, you know, I want to put you in Bachelor of the Month. And I said, okay, come on, this is one of my friends just, you know, <laughs> taking a joke with me. And I, I said, stop. You know, who is this? And no, no, no. I just want to know. You know, you know what you like to do on holiday. I said, listen, I got to go. Stop. You're not going to tell me who this is. I, I don't want to hear it. No, please, just tell me. What do you like to do? You know, on holiday. I said, I like to go skiing. You know, I said, but tell me, who is this? No, 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 it's okay, thank you. That was, <laughs> was the entire conversation. And, uh, and all of a sudden, they made up this little byline, this little story. And thank goodness it wasn't the internet days. I mean, that's when it was just a magazine distribution. But I can't tell you how many duffel bags full of mail. It was just uh, quite embarrassing. <laughs> what an honor. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, I, I wouldn't wish that on a... On an enemy. It was uh, quite <laughs> overwhelming. You're a New Jersey boy, born and bred. So why did you decide when you started your first kind of showroom to do it in London? Well, I can actually make a great story of how the market outside the U.S. With, for airplanes, which is about 50% of the world market, was underserved. Mm. And, um, and how they really didn't get the attention they should, and that 90% of the competition for selling jets is actually in America. Mm. That all would sound like a great story, but the fact of the matter is, is I met a fantastic woman here, and <laughs> uh, and it changed my life. So here I am, and yeah. uh, and then the, the rest is history. Of course. And, and I guess the kind of, the point of difference of your company is that you've got a physical presence where people can stroll in off the street without appointment and essentially buy a jet then and there, although I doubt many people buy on the day, do they? No, that, that, that doesn't really happen. <laughs> no, we have had people come in and sign a contract to have us represent them to buy or sell a plane. Mm. But it, yes, it's a very, very different concept. Nobody else has anything like this in the world. I believe it just was something that I wanted to develop because I just think that somebody who's spending you know, 20, 30 million pounds is, is, should be served in a little bit better mm. uh, way than the typical way this business operates, which is really just a telephone call and sending somebody an email with a brochure, which is quite absurd. Yeah. I mean, people don't buy anything like, uh, you know, a piece of furniture or, or a car that way. Why you no. buy a, a, a private jet that way is pretty crazy. So I wanted to have a little bit 
more interaction, bring the people through an experiential journey. And I built this showroom, which is a combination of the environment, the technology, and the data. So the environment is a place where they can feel it's a mixture of their office, their home, and their airplane. Uh, and then I have the technology, because today, unless you're you know, hitting your finger on a piece of glass, you're, you're not interested in anything today. Uh, so we built this app that we have on our gigantic video wall, which is the size of the largest corporate jet interior wow. uh, that's made. And we can compare full-size floor plans, cross-sections, or all the operating and, and um, dimension specs of any airplane in the world. So you can see them full-size. You can stand up against the video wall, see yeah. how tall you are versus the height of the airplane, the width, how long it is, how, different, how the difference in the width of the aisles are, things like that and take them through all kinds of analysis. And the data inside is where all my research and sales guys are filling the, uh, our CRM system and the app so that we know every airplane in the world that, that's getting traded, that is for sale, or that is, um, is being sold. And when we're meeting with a client, they get overwhelmed by all this information, and we can really make any of these people a genius in 30 minutes. Yeah. And, and they every one of them that comes in, no matter how arrogant or how nice they are, they, they really seem to uh, appreciate what they learn in that short time, amount yeah. of time. Uh, if it was such a new concept, were you, were you nervous about setting it up? Did you think it might, there might be a reason no one's done it before? Yeah, it was, it was two things were pretty unreasonable about the whole idea. One was it was in 2009, which was right, right after the financial crash. Yeah. So everybody was still predicting the end of the world was near and business was finished forever. And the other thing was I talked to a few people about my idea of, you know, of having to fly around the world to meet these people. And, and in the old days, it used to be Europe and America. That's where really all, everybody had an airplane. But in, those, in, in the last 15 years, that's changed. So you get all the people from these emerging markets, from these frontier markets, from, you know, whether it's in Africa or Russia, Ukraine or China or Malaysia, these places that really didn't have mm. an airplane um, uh, environment. So... I didn't really want to go to fly all these places, and I thought face-to-face -face was important. And uh, I thought, okay, I'm going to build a place that I can get these people to come and see me. Mm. And after asking 10 people, and pretty much the common you know, response was, check yourself into a psychiatric hospital. <laughs> um, it was not a, a really a raving, yeah, know, yeah, yeah. Uh, acceptable idea. But the more people told me that, the more I thought, well, maybe it is a good idea. And I was really undecided. Um, Yes, no, yes, no. But I was drawing plans and building the business plan, the model and everything like that. It was a big, big uh, leap of faith. But when I found this one location, I just thought, that's it. I'm going full in. Yeah. And I pulled the trigger. And, you know, once you decide to go, you know, it's you not go. a place to be half pregnant. No. <laughs> <laughs> what, what was it about the location? Well, the initial location was right on Hyde Park Corner. Mm. So when you went around the roundabout, uh, you had to sort of look in this window and I really feel when you're in London, you know, everybody is either in Knightsbridge, Mayfair, or Belgravia that is transient mm. coming through England and London. Um, and the high net worth eyeballs is what we were looking for. So really, anybody who owned or operated a jet that came from Africa, the Middle East, the ex-CIS countries, Europe, would come through London. And that's sort of the financial mecca. You know, New York and London are really the two main places in the world. 
So I thought, okay, come to London, you have all of these continents, all these people from those continents coming through London, and everybody would go around that roundabout. That was the ideal place to get the yeah. eyeballs' attention. So that was the original location, and I've since moved now to Park Lane. Yeah, which is a similar thing. It's a incredibly expensive space. Yeah. Um, and the rent is ridiculous, and I was wondering why I found that space. It was empty for two years, and I didn't know why. But when I started negotiating with the landlord, I found out why. <laughs> <laughs> they wouldn't budge on anything. Yeah. So eventually I had to cave in, and I wanted it so badly, I, I did it. So what, what was the first milestone when you realized this concept really works and this is going to go somewhere? Well, when I was in the first location, the first six or seven months, I, I really thought I made a major, major mistake. Because I, I designed the space, which ended up to be 99% perfect for what I should do. Mm-hmm. Uh, we hired the team. Everything in my head was unperfect. Mm. And um, the one stupid mistake that I never even thought of, being an entrepreneur, uh, uh, is that you actually had to run a business. You know, So I was used to buying and selling planes and dealing with clients all the time. But I wasn't really used to having to deal with landlords and having HR and people that you had to hire and then... People didn't know what the concept was, so we had to explain it to everybody, not only our own team, but the people coming in in our industry and the media, you know, what our whole concept was and how it was going to work. Um, of course, you had the naysayers in those days. And, and when anybody comes in, also, it takes an hour and a half or two hours of your time because you take them through the whole process. Yeah. So two or three of those people in a day, and, you know, then you're dealing with company stuff. You don't have any time to sell planes. Mm. So really, the first six, seven months, I, I thought I made a devastating error. Uh, but then the first one happened, and then the second one happened, and it's sort of like a locomotive coming out yeah. of the station. Once it, you know, it starts going very slow, but once it starts picking up speed, it really plows through. So let's say that um, I'm a billionaire, and I want to buy a private jet from you. I walk into your, to your showroom. I've got, I don't know, $40 million dollars? Is that enough to get me a jet, do you think? Oh, yeah, you can get anything you want. Get anything, fine. $40 million, that sounds nice. Um, What's the first step? What do you do with me when I first walk through the door? Well, when you actually come into the the, uh, the reception of the office building, Mm. you put your name uh, and company into this little app that we have there so we know who's coming in. Okay. And uh, and in those, let's say, minute or two that it takes for our assistant to go out and get you Mm. and bring you into the showroom, if you did not have an appointment, so you just a you know walk in, if yeah. drive in or whatever you want to call it, um, in those two minutes, my team on the trading floor have already done done their MI five research, right. and if you actually are working with a company or for a company that has an airplane or you have an airplane, in the two minutes from when the assistant comes out and gets you and yeah. brings you into our office, on our forty foot video wall will be a gigantic photo of your airplane sitting on that air. So <laughs> Do people you, like that? Does that scare people? Yeah, well, it resets <laughs> their attitude. Right. Because, um, you know, some you know people say, oh, what's this store that sells jets? It sounds ridiculous, you know. Or somebody will come in and say, oh, my friend told me, you know, Steve, I have to come and see you. I got five minutes. You know, quick, quick, quick. What do you have? What do you have? And all of a sudden they walk in and they see their plane. They're like, whoa. You know, I mean, okay, how did this guy know that was me? What do they know about me? And all of a sudden, now they take it a little bit more seriously that, okay, we might know what we're talking about here. Once I've bought my jet, how, okay, so how much is my jet going to cost me if I, I need to fly it once a week and I want to go to Washington, D.C.? Okay, so this is, it's interesting because probably about 
25% of the people who we do business with, it's their first time, yeah. uh, first airplane being purchased. So the app actually takes you through this process. There are 142 different aircraft models that you could select from that yeah. are still being traded around the world. Not airplanes for sale, but just different models to pick from. So it's, it's a pretty weird thing because most of the time these guys will say, oh, my friend told me I should buy a G550 or a Challenger 300 or some airplane. That would be perfect for you. I mean, it's the most stupidest comment to say to somebody because it's like me meeting you for the first time yeah. and saying, you know, Joe, you should meet my ex-wife. She'd be perfect <laughs> for you. You know, like, I mean, it's stupid. I mean, I don't know if you like tall, short, redhead, blonde, <laughs> yeah, yeah, fat, yeah. skinny. It, I don't know anything about you. So what the app does is it takes you through a very quick process yeah. to filter out all the airplanes that don't meet your needs. So the first question, of course, we ask is, how much do you want to spend? So we put your number in, 40 million or whatever it is. And actually, before that, depending on what country you come from, we set it into your currency. Mm. So even though airplanes are priced in U.S. dollars all around the world, we, we set it into your currency. So right now, I don't want you thinking about anything except what I'm going to teach you. So converting a currency, yeah, of course. You, know, you might be off 5 or 10% easily, and it's going to throw everything off. The second thing we do is, do you think in metric, you know, in meters, mm. or do you think in imperial, you think in feet? you know, centimeters, inches, you know, knots, nautical miles. So we get your how your brain works best, and we set the app into that kind of wow. a configuration. So there's no thinking inside your brain. So you put these parameters in this app, and it filters out everything. So from 142, now we're immediately down to, let's say, I don't know, 20. So it's interesting at this point, because you can ask the person, okay, we want to reduce it down to, let's say, four or five. You want to save more money, spend less. You want a newer airplane. You want to carry more passengers. Mm. You want to go further. And they don't even know what's more important to them until you ask those questions. And then you see how they start thinking, yeah, actually, I don't want to spend that much money. Or yeah. I, I might want to go instead of Dubai to you know, India or something. So that also makes them think about the process. You reduce it down to, let's say, three or four planes. And now we start comparing the life-size size of the cross-section of the of the fuselage so mm. you can stand on by the video all see how high it is compared to your height if it's a flat floor or step down you look at the difference in aisle width between the chairs i could do the full size of the floor plan on this vid giant video wall so you see the full length and the full width and how each one overlays on top of each other yeah it's just something that nobody's ever done before and you know, if you actually even go on all these airplanes at the airport, your brain will play tricks on you anyway because the optical illusion of, of if there's stripes of in, in the material, in the carpet, on the chairs, if there's a, a blanket over it, if the pillows are on it, if the windows are small or bigger, if it's lighter or darker inside, all those things play tricks on your brain. And you can't really tell if one airplane's bigger than the other. No. If you fly on it for eight hours, you can figure it out. But... You know, it, this is actually showing factual data. It's not an opinion I have, and, I, and it really empowers each person to be able to know why he's picking mm. one versus the other and why he's not picking the others. So it really makes them feel, you know, it's like a proud peacock. And the of next course. day, when they pick the airplane and, and somebody says to them, well, why didn't you pick this one instead of that one? Wow, they feel so confident in, yeah. in explaining why they made that decision. So you move in, I guess, the kind of the uppermost crust of a very juicy pie. Um, you move with some of the wealthiest people in the world. How has the how has the profile of those people changed in the last ten years, whether it's by age or by 
nationality? Yeah, great question. I mean, you know, if you actually go back to 1990, when, you know, the, the Cold War ended, the perestroika, Russia, the, you know, Berlin Wall, the wall came down, all this kind of stuff started happening. Mm. Um, that changed the world. And it took a few years to happen. But in those days, 80% of all the jets were in America. And 19% were in Europe. And 1% was the whole rest of the world. Wow. Today, about 50% are in America. There's about 12, 14% are in Europe. And so it gives you about 35% of the airplanes in the world are where they never existed before. So the, the, the demographic and the, and the profile of the kind of buyer or the corporation that, that was buying airplanes has drastically changed. Mm -hmm. And for us, it makes a big difference because the way the Western world businessman deals, we're used to it. And unfortunately, the way the rest of the world dealt in their upbringing, mm. they weren't familiar with the way the Western world dealt. They weren't familiar with the capitalistic way. And they were really survivors. So, you know, dealing with some of these personalities now that are, you know, in their 40s or 50s that grew up in that whole time period, it took a while for them to adjust. And sometimes, you know, the ethics and the values are not what we're yeah. accustomed to. In what way? The, the, just they're more upfront or they're... I mean, just, you know, people don't always do what they say they're going to do. Um, okay. You, you know, and in mostly in business, I find it rare everywhere that people do what they say they're going to do when they say they're going to yeah, do it. I mean, it's hard to rely on people. And you, you can't... You have to push forward as if you're gonna, everything is going to happen okay, but you have to set your expectations mm -hmm. where if it doesn't, you're not going to slice your wrist because if, if you are that kind of person, this is not the business to be in. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of people let you down. A lot of people say stuff that they don't mean. Maybe they mean it, but it never happens. Of course. And so the kind of person you're dealing with you know, outside our, you know, the Western world is a, a completely different business ethic, and you have to adjust to their cultures, mm. their, their value system, and their body language, and things that most people don't understand how to do that. Yeah. Donald Trump and his campaign made great capital out of using his kind of $100 million Boeing jet. Was it a Boeing jet? Yeah. <clears throat> it was a Boeing 757. So but it was basically a passenger airline. Yeah, converted into a okay. VIP interior. But uh, again, <laughs> he believes that he paid $100 million for that, but it wasn't anywhere close to that. What, what do you think it was, really? It was probably close to the 30. Okay, wow. <laughs> <laughs> then as soon as he got elected, he, he gave tax breaks to jet owners as well. Yeah, listen, I mean, not to be in a political conversation no, here not. And, and, and not to you know judge of any of his social decisions in, in, uh, in politics, but from a business standpoint, you know, he has made America turn back to a capitalistic yeah. environment. And... And you don't have to be bashful to be a, a public company company that owns a corporate jet because it really enhances your business. It creates time for the executives. And so, you know, being that Trump and a big part of his cabinet are wealthy people or corporate CEOs that owned corporate mm. jets, they understand the value of these airplanes. And um, it became much more acceptable to own a jet. And then in December, when he passed the, the new tax cut law, that was a, a real surge 
in interest in aircraft because he changed the tax code where you can deduct 100% uh, in a depreciation schedule of that value of that airplane the, f the first year. Yeah. That gave a nice little push to uh, get rid of some airplanes. So he's done more than most people ever to change the kind of landscape of the jet business in a way. I don't know if the word ever, but uh, <laughs> you know, in the last two or three administrations yeah. for sure. I mean, it is, um, it, it, you can't look at it as a, just a rich guy buying a jet because these are corporations mm. that really need these airplanes. I mean, if you bring it close to home here, when Tesco had their problem and the first thing that everybody said is, oh, they have these corporate jets, it's terrible. That's ridiculous. I mean, these, these companies have locations and factories and stores and employees in dozens of countries. Mm. And you can't send a team of people on the airlines to all these different places efficiently and be back within a, a relatively short period of time. So these jets really multiply executives' time and yeah. it benefits the companies. And they work on the airplanes where they can't really work on, a, on an airliner. They have flexibility. They can fly overnight at any hour. They have confidentiality. They have security. It's a completely different yeah. situation than, than the general public believes. To put you on the spot a bit, how, how do you think the private jet business will change in the next 10 years? Well, I think it's, you're going to see a drastic change. Um, in shorter distances, uh, I think that the world is going to go to, a, you know, maybe some of your listeners here are, are old enough to remember of a cartoon called The Jetsons. Yes. And, um, <laughs> and that is really where I think the world is going. And it's basically going to be autonomous, passenger-carrying, electric drones. Wow. And, and uh, people are saying, oh, you know, you're talking about science fiction. It's way out in the future. Mm. I am telling you right now, it is already in existence. There's okay. about 15 companies that are developing these. And they're test flying them. And they are really going to change the, the local shorter haul distance traveling in city center. Let's say if you want to go from... London to Heathrow yeah. or London to Birmingham or something like that. You're going to see that a lot. And autonomous cars, it's sort of almost caveman already because these, these other flying machines or flying cars yeah. are going to take control. I want to ask you about your advice to, to young entrepreneurs now because this business, more than almost any other, seems to be about knowing people and how you converse with people and, in fact, being likable. How can people cultivate those skills and that network, which is, you can't learn that at business school. You're right. And I think social media is actually not social. I, I th it is digitally. It is on, on little electronic machines. But a lot of younger people are being less social and less interactive mm. with other people face-to-face. And you can't get to know people. You know, this whole thing about how many followers I have yeah. or how many friends I have or, is it's just a artificial, you know, or a different definition of a word. Yeah. And, and believe me, a friend is somebody who's going to talk to you when you have a problem. And, and none of your followers are, you know, they just sort of un, unfriend you. <laughs> um, but I, I think, yeah, the younger people, I do think it's going to be harder and harder for them to, to be able to interact and grow their, their circle of mm. friends. And if you want to do it in, a, in the upper end of the spectrum of, of people, uh, you really need to be out there. And, yeah. and um, you know, things happen when you're out there. When you're in a you know, restaurant or in a party, in a wedding, a bar mitzvah, or whatever it is, you know, you, 
you meet people and things happen. Yeah. There's something you learn from somebody else or you hear about something or somebody, an opportunity comes yeah. up. And you, you just have to be out there. And mm. I don't, and believe me, uh, Lisa and myself, we, we are out all the time. <laughs> we socialize all the time. And uh, we love it. We, we like being with people. We're not doing it yeah. for the reason of growing a, a friend base, but we just in, sincerely enjoy it. Okay. But you have to enjoy it. And if you don't, then go create an app and stick, stay in your room and just, you know, write you no know, ones and zeros and, yeah. and stay in your room and close the shades. So we should all party more, essentially. That's what you're saying. That's the advice I can get behind, I think. Play harder. Well, you should definitely get out there more okay. and socialize more and, and see what's going on around the world and investigate. Of course, you can be on the web and you can always research and mm. see all these incredible things in the world that are happening because there are unbelievable things happening in you know, artificial intelligence and longevity and robotics, in stem cell, in, in transportation. Yeah. I mean, there's amazing things going on in the world. So you go to these conferences, you go to these places where you meet people and learn what's going on. It's not necessarily partying, but yeah. you know, getting out there and, and really investigating what's going on in the world. Try to be around people that know more than you do. The other best saying in the world is if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. <laughs> Um, I want to ask you now something very unpractical. I want to know about Steve, the man, not just Steve, the businessman. Okay. First off, who in the world of business do you most admire? I mean, there's a, there's a number of people. I think uh, one of the most inspirational people is probably one of the people who inspires more people around the world than most people is a guy named Tony Robbins. He's a mm. motivational speaker um, in America, but he also is around the world. Uh, he is... He, from him, he's invested in dozens of different companies, but he's such a charitable kind of guy also. And uh, he helps a lot of the underprivileged, and he's super successful in business, and he helps people build their energy and their sort of um, um, a passion to okay. try to move forward. So I really admire somebody like that. But, you know, people like, you know, local, let's say a Richard Branson kind of guy who started from nothing and, and really built a gigantic em empire, and he's, you know, in from you know, the airplanes to space, and I actually served on the board of directors of Virgin Galactic for four years. Yeah. Um, so there are those kind of people who really started with nothing and really built something out of it. I really admire those people because it, it's really difficult to start with nothing. Yeah. Uh, it's, and, you know, it's not to say people who were giving, given a, a life growing up with a silver spoon in their mouth, okay, for them to actually grow their, the business to a new level, kudos for them also mm. because it's an easy road to go and just slide into oblivion yeah, and drink yourself into you know to a mess and do nothing in life. And for those people, the challenge is really more difficult because you have to prove yourself through your family and yeah. your name, you know, where you're always given everything and people don't believe that you know you aren't doing it yourself. So those people really have a harder yeah. job to really build something, but albeit on a on a base that's already existing. Of course. Is there a book you you most often recommend to people? A hundred percent. It's a book called Atlas Shrugged. Right. It's by a author named Anne Rand, A Y N Rand R A N D, and it's basically uh, written in the fifties by a Russian immigrant lady, which is amazing. And it's it's a fictional story about uh, the the war between altruism and capitalism. Mm. And it's really the most unbelievable book anybody could read. I think 
I read someplace a long time ago, it had more effect on people, second only to the Bible. Yeah. Um, it's an unbelievable story to read, and everybody should read that book. It's, it's happening in a lot of countries today. It's kind of an ultra-capitalist text, isn't it, really? It's many, many business people have been inspired by that. Yes, it, it really ultra-capitalist, but, yeah. it, it, but it's reality. I mean, you, you wonder why governments today don't see this light. I mean, you know, look near, nearby, look in France, where they used to have, you know, Hollande as a president, they charged 75% in tax, and all the high net worth people and companies were leaving. And the country went into the abyss. Hmm. All of a sudden, this guy Macron comes in, has a completely different attitude. The, the whole country changes just by one figurehead. You know, look in America. He, he, Trump comes in, he changes, you know, the tax code. He makes it more capitalistic. And, and all of a sudden, the economy in America is on fire. Unemployment is at an all-time low. And then you come here, okay, and you have stamp duty. You have uh, uh, non-DOM rules change. You have inheritance tax issues. You have Brexit. You have, you know, the issue of another party coming in that's going to completely squash any any capitalist kind of attitude. Mm. I, I think that, you know, you look at what changes positively in the world and, yeah. and take those as great educational lessons. I, I just don't see how people don't see that kind of yeah. benefit. And it benefits everybody, the masses. Maybe it might not be politically correct to do for a vote, but it's politically correct to do for, for the people of the country. Yeah. You're not going to leave the UK then, are you, if we, if we have a Labour administration? <laughs> uh, excuse me, I, I don't think I heard that question. I, I the <laughs> next one. <laughs> and finally, do you have a personal motto, that either in business or in your life, that carries you through? Like I said before, you know, if you're the smartest guy in the room, you're in the wrong room. I, I, just, okay. I, I think to surround yourself with people all the time that are, that are smarter, better, more successful than you, and, uh, and learn. Wonderful. Steve, thank you very much. Thank you. Appreciate the opportunity. Thank you very, very much for listening to this episode of the Gentleman's Journal podcast. We'll be back in a fortnight with more invaluable insights from the world of entrepreneurs. But until then, you can find us on our website, which is www.thegentlemansjournal.com. Or if you're so inclined, follow us on Instagram at The Gents Journal or indeed on Twitter at The Gents Journal. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you very, very soon.